0: NOVA Ukraine and UNICEF USA Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. NOVA Ukraine and UNICEF USA are partnering to support children and families devastated by the war in Ukraine. Together, they will be providing life-saving assistance where it matters most by providing emergency access to water, delivering health, hygiene, and education supplies, establishing blue dot centers to concentrate delivery of emergency services, and more. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting give.novaukraine.org/unicef. Your donations are 100% secure and tax deductible and your contribution will help support relief on the ground in Ukraine. That's give.novaukraine.org/unicef. Thank you for listening.
1: welcome everyone welcome to the Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club of California thanks for joining us today for those of you here in the auditorium as well as everyone watching or listening online for any of you who are joining us for the first time the Commonwealth Club is a 118 I think we might be 119 year old nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues and hopefully help the community in the process The Commonwealth Club produces hundreds of programs a year, even during the pandemic. You can find our future upcoming programs as well as audio and video of past events at CommonwealthClub.org. And you can find specific Michelle Miao show programs at CommonwealthClub.org slash MMS. So first of all, housekeeping, if you're in the auditorium here, please silence your phone since we are, of course, streaming this live as well as recording it for the future. Um, If you're at home, you can let your phone ring as loud as you want. It doesn't matter. We want to thank Gilead Sciences for its support of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. And we're glad tonight to be partnering with TransClinique on the special event series. TransClinique is the first national trans-owned and operated gender-affirming telehealth clinic. And last but not least, thanks to SFAIDS Foundation for the post-program food and entertainment you'll be able to enjoy up on the rooftop when we're done down here. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, She is the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. And she's sitting right next to me. Hi.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, John, for that awesome introduction. And welcome all of you to this program. Thanks for taking out uh, some time this Friday evening. And I know it's still something that we're getting used to coming out in person. And then for those of you who are joining online Keep doing you. <laughs> Keep doing <laughs> the new normal. Um, the Michelle Meow Show, for those who are joining us for the very first time, is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'm very pleased to introduce to you our esteemed panel here who will all talk about the future and transgender healthcare. Or I should say, in a much more inclusive way, uh, transgender nonconforming, or non binary communities and how by focusing on our community, we can create a much more inclusive world for healthcare. So let me begin by introducing you to Dr. Heidi Wittenberg, who's sitting right here next to me. Uh, She's a medical director at the Gender Institute and chief of surgery at St. Francis Memorial Hospital and also director of Mosaic Care, Inc., we have, next, we have Dr. Christy Butler, who's an assistant professor and urologic surgeon at the University of California at San Francisco, Dr. Ellie Zara-Leh, Ley, is a plastic surgeon physician at the Gender Conf- Confirmation Center, and last but not least, Dr. Alexis Petra, who's the founder and CEO of TransClinic. Let's welcome everyone to the program. <laughs> So, why don't we have uh, you all start by sharing how how and why you joined the medical field and what inspired you to specialize in trans affirming healthcare? What changes have you experienced in trans healthcare over the last decade? Dr. Wittenberg.
3: Um, so, I was originally OBGYN by training, and I've been practicing in San Francisco since 1999 and started off as a pelvic reconstructive surgeon and became more specialized with uh, minimally invasive GYN surgery and techniques, uh, neuro pelvic pain, robotic surgery. And then I was asked by a gender affirmation um, practice to help them with surgeries. And I trained with them for a year and realized that this is kind of the pinnacle of reconstructive surgery and is complicated enough that it really needs to be focused on um, for patient safety outcomes and to really progress the surgery along. So, um, decided to focus. I felt I was professionally evolutionarily made for, uh, performing these surgeries and, um, and now I'm bringing new babies into the world as I originally (laughs) had, but as they should have been born. (laughs) Dr. Butler.
4: Um, I think for me, it was certainly kind of an evolution. You know, I went into medicine like a lot of folks. I was drawn to more particularly vulnerable populations. I worked a lot with homeless. I worked a lot with the underinsured and uh, really had a particular focus for more vulnerable populations. And it wasn't until I got to my training uh, in urology where I was exposed for the first time for to gender-diverse individuals and really just kind of seeing how they were treated, the mistreatment, people not even wanting to come down and see or examine them because they didn't know what to do. Um, I just found that really baffling. And I really kind of took it upon myself uh, in my research gap year where I learned and educated myself with and shadowed some other folks, um, kind of better understanding their plights and Um, what they go through to to get to surgery um, and just in the field of medicine and learn that I could have a focus on on this. So I actually did a a year of fellowship up at Oregon Health and Science University where I specialized in gender affirming surgery and urologic reconstruction, Um, just kind of honing in on specific skills to be able to offer gender affirmation surgery and then really wanting to bring that back to UCSF where it was so sorely missed. Um, And that's
5: what I'm hoping to do now, going forward, Dr. Lee. So my my path to gender uh, surgery, I I kind of think of it as sort of a series of unfortunate events that, in retrospect, turned out to be um, you know true blessings. And so I started. I started. Uh, I am a plastic surgeon, um, and so. Um, finishing uh, general surgery and and wanting to be a plastic surgeon i took a bit of a long path to become uh, what i am now professionally and so i did plastic surgery then went on to do craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgery then that just wasn't enough for me so i just had to keep going (laughs) um and so then i completed hand and microsurgery training um and went on to become a pretty well-rounded uh, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, uh, doing um, academic medicine. That's how I started in the field, and I, you know, I decided to to move uh, um, from the academic setting into the private practice setting, and through. You know kind of going through that, I was starting to experience now it 's no secret. I am part of the community, um, and so this was uh, kind of a dark time for me where I had to decide um, you know whether I should become who I really am or give up and you know sort of end it all so um, I somehow uh, found the the courage or strength to to accept myself and then uh, move on and so um, sort of by serendipity. I, you know, I myself was looking for surgery. And when I went to see one of the sort of old giants in, in gender surgery, um, Dr. Uh, Toby Meltzer, he was my surgeon. Um, I went in, you know, literally looking for surgery and came out with a job. So <laughs> he offered me, he really did my very, very first consult. Um, we got to talking, he asked me what I did and he was pretty impressed with my background and, and just, you know, just like Dr. Wittenberg said, you know, through the experiences and the fellowships, um, it, it seemed like I had the right set of skills. And sometimes it just takes someone to really sort of believe in you, um, take you under their wing. And that's what Dr. Meltzer uh, did. I'm forever grateful uh, for him, even though I'm not in his uh, group anymore. But um, he trained me. And because he is one of these um, sort of old, well-established practices where back in the day he did everything because that's what he had to do, Uh, learn it all and then do it all. He passed it all on to me and I was able to um, sort of continue that work. And I still do uh, today. I offer fully comprehensive surgery uh, across the, you know, essentially the entire gender spectrum. And uh, that has made me uh, who i am and it's been very fulfilling especially in my personal position to to be able to provide that thank you so much yeah and dr alexis oh sure um i think i went to
6: college uh, i was the first person in my family you know first generation college so it was really important for me to collect as many degrees as possible so <laughs> i think that's why uh, i went to med school but but for real um you know, it's always a combination of math, science, and helping people. As far as med school, um, you know, as far as trans affirming care, uh, non-binary um, folks. You know, I've been personally and professionally involved in the community uh, for over 20 years. I don't want to date myself, but uh, <laughs> but you know, whether it be sort of a baby trans hanging out at the Abbey in West Hollywood or divas or you know something like that. Um, yeah, I've really been with the community for uh, quite a long time, so I have very intimate. Knowledge and connection, Um, and I've always wanted to, you know, find my space uh, to kind of give back, and and I finally found it, you know, a couple of years ago, and we could talk more about that in a little bit. But so yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of my lane, my way of giving back, and you know, I'm really happy uh, to work with the community. So that's all basically how it started. Well, thanks for sharing
1: how you each got into it. Um, I'd like to hear from each of you, maybe like what or during the past ten years or whatever. What are a couple of the most important developments you've seen or changes you've seen in trans-affirming health care, say, for the past decade. Well, why don't we start with you and, and go backwards? Yeah, absolutely.
6: So um, one thing, you know, you know, compared to when I transitioned, which is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there wasn't quite as much, um, you know, Publicity about trans care you know there wasn't uh, you had to kind of search it out and you know it wasn't wasn't quite as easy um so something like Transclinique where it's you know super accessible um so there's been all positive changes, and you know I think that uh you know. Trans care in general, trans health. People are paying more attention to it, and it's become a lot more important part of the landscape in healthcare, medical school training. You know, have these amazing surgeons and advancements in the care that you know that you can provide for people to transition. So, so I think accessibility has definitely improved uh, markedly in the past decade, and just awareness.
5: Okay. I agree with uh, Dr. Alexis. Um, some of the advances or progress in in health care in the time that I've been doing uh, gender surgery is really just more insurance uh, carriers offering coverage for uh, um, gender-related, certainly surgical care, um, and not just focusing on what um, a lot of people tend to focus is what's between your legs type of thing. Um, They are expanding those... uh, services and coverage uh, in terms of the insurance carriers to uh, things like facial feminization, facial masculinization, body contouring, breast augmentation, um, which the majority of the society you know think of it as cosmetic uh, surgeries, well, they really aren't. They are medically necessary uh, procedures uh, to treat our patients, treat their health, um, but also, you know, it all goes towards their, their safety, too. Um, in the public space, um, I would say representation
4: uh, I think you know there's definitely more of a push to uh, have more gender diverse individuals represented in the field of medicine, not only as patients but as providers, um, especially even like within schools um, and I think. That's important especially when we talk about you know when we're gathering as an academic centers and having these conversations and and standardizing um how we go about doing surgeries you know recognizing that there's differences but making sure from as as a safety standpoint um you know we're kind of protocolizing things and being able to talk about them more openly um, in academic forums and have more educated
3: conversations about
4: it
6: great
3: um Agree with everything. Um, I, I would say there's also um, just, if you see over the last 10 years, the how membership to the World Professional Association of Transgender Health has increased in its numbers and how beginning with uh, certain departments or uh, organizations actually want to hear and be educated um, as to for our patients would have to cobble together their care and educate their providers is it 's the beginning of of people being aware there 's gender care um, and um, and also there 's care that ir- irrespective of someone 's gender, you take care of them so just opening up the doors and so it 's becoming more society 's becoming more aware and instead of a patient across the country calling their surgeon and, you know, at least they're starting to be local providers, which, mm-hmm. is, which is a big thing over the last 10 years, which is great. It's all,
2: you know, signs pointing upwards and positive and good news. This is great. I <laughs> think so. Definitely. Um, Dr. Alexis, why don't we talk about, uh, you know, why you started Trans Clinic and how mm-hmm. creating space in this way might be changing the landscape for trans-affirming care and, okay. uh, you know, basically how... Talk to us about the access this creates for the trans and non-binary communities.
6: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I kind of thought about it. uh, Well, I've always wanted to, you know, again, give back and create a space and sort of a clinic for the community. And and I was thinking how to do it, you know, like local brick and mortar. You get very limited outreach and, you know, it's kind of expensive. And so I kind of was thinking how to piece this together. This is like late 2019 and then the pandemic started, so it was kind of a, you know, in a way, it was like you know, a perfect storm or a confluence of events that created this opportunity. So, you know, I was thinking, who wants to order you know, a doctor on the internet and things like that? But then it would be everyone's on Zoom now, so everybody's, you know, it became very widely accepted. So all of a sudden, you know, it just went boom, you know, everyone's shelter in place, the clinics are closed, um, you know it's very limited access during that period of time, especially. So, you know, since then, I've uh, got relationships with labs to make it very affordable, Uh, compound pharmacies. You can have shipped your house if you want, things like that. So the accessibility, you know, I'm in 26 states right now. So, you know, if you're at any of the border of those, you know, within that state, you don't have to drive two or three hours or wait six months to get an appointment. So it's, um, you know, it's as easy as picking up your phone or your laptop and, you know scheduling a zoom call so yeah accessibility you know that's basically it um you know safety you don't if you're you know, marginalized you don't have to go out you know i took care of someone in alabama yesterday who you know was kind of afraid to you know come out right away and um so yeah so i think the safety accessibility convenience all those things um you know it's made it uh you know Wonderful uh, for people, so I'm excited about the, the continuation of this.
1: Dr. Lee, there, when, in the field of trans healthcare, mostly you're going to find cis male practitioners, I think, or at least traditionally have. Um, you've got deep roots in this community, obviously. And talk a bit more about both what you bring to it, as well as what you and others can do to attract more trans people into the healthcare practitioner side
5: yeah sure um and there's nothing wrong with uh, cis males providing kinder uh, <laughs> care um but the yes you're right there are um many um you know it's pretty rare to, to have a a trans uh surgical provider um you know I'm sort of unique in that way but um uh hopefully not for long um but in terms of uh what it can give uh I think we are. You know, certainly the major centers were all very competent in providing care, and we provide compassionate care and and um, really uh, wish uh, our patients well. Um, But um, the only thing I can say that I, you know, I sort of bring extra is the fact that I've been through it, and you know, as painful as it is to sort of keep bringing up like those parts that I, I just want to squash down. I realize that, um, you know, I can really help a patient in a much different level um, by sharing even my own experiences as uncomfortable as those are. And sometimes it gets to me, and I'm just like, why? Just shut up. Don't say anything. <laughs> but, um, but honestly, if it helps a patient get through dilation or it helps them get through a certain complication, I tell them, look, you know, it's surgery, you know, what you're going through is, is, yes, it sucks, but it's not that bad. So I, I bring that extra, you know, I guess, um, tenderness, maybe, TLC, to my patients. And they for the most part, they seem to appreciate it. For the most part. Sometimes they get mad at me, even for that. <laughs> um, but um yeah I think that's that's a part um but that it's not a requirement to to obviously be a good provider because i'm I'm surrounded by them here but um you know, and you know some people I want them to come to me because I'm good, not because i'm trans or things like that, but it does help a little bit, and some people do. And I, I do appreciate that because it just means that I'm doing a good job at what I'm doing, but I'm also serving um, perhaps for the for the youth or for other people, um, you know, becoming a a positive role model in the community and showing that, you know, with you know, persistence, encouragement and even through failures that you can still basically make it, Um, I think at the medical school level or at the undergrad level for all the youth, um, you know, for anyone, not just someone like me, is just to be supportive and um, instill basically courage and resilience, Um, you know, those characteristics to our youth to say that, look, don't let this hold you back, you know, use this. And move forward, and you can retry you don 't have to settle for anything less than that, and so I have had um, patients who are medical students and they want to be you know they want to go into gender surgery, and you know they 're so smart that i have no doubt that they will, so I actually look forward to um, having more um, people within our community, not just trans but gender diverse uh, you know, sort of rise through the ranks of of medicine anyway, but any field, really, and just get out there and show the world really that we are capable, we're here, um, and we're good people, because there's so much hate, you know, just like Dr. Uh, Petra said, you know, she mentioned Alabama, and I think she mentioned it for a reason, (laughs) because I woke up this morning to my nerdy like wake-up call of, you know, NPR uh, news uh, flash, and The first story, which really woke me up, was, you know, what happened in Alabama and how I could literally go to jail there for doing what I do. Um, So um, it's upsetting.
1: You mentioned some of your patients and their interest in in the field of medicine. Have you you ever offered any of them a job in their first appointment?
5: (laughs) Oh, not yet. (laughs) Not yet, but I might just return the favor.
1: (laughs) Pay it forward, yeah. Mm -hmm. Michelle?
2: Yeah. Dr. Butler, you're both a a medical professional and a professor in the educational field. And so what advancements have you seen in the field, but also what additional education do you think we need? That's a great question.
4: Um, You know, I think a lot of what we've already kind of discussed so far today, I think just recognizing the Um, mistreatment and discrimination that's occurred thus far and how, you know, we can really make a difference. And I think kind of adopting two things, one of this collaborative approach, right? You know, we are opening to more forums. We're opening to more lectures, um, fellowships for dedicated study of this. I think that's a huge advancement in this field that wasn't there before. Uh, Similarly, I think this idea of a multidisciplinary model, right? Where, You can uh, collaborate with people from different specialties, from medicine, from mental health services, from social services. These are all fields that are really needed to treat the individual, right? It takes a village um, to treat the individual. So being able to adopt that sort of model where you can have these sort of discussions and figure out what's the best approach to treat each patient because it's all different. Um, As far as, you know what education is needed, I mean, there's, there's so much, but I think, you know, when we think about it, we're fortunate to be in the Bay Area, right, where we have a lot of gender-affirming providers at our fingertips, but in other places, like Alabama, where there's really maybe one provider, and what it comes down to is we're really aiming for this gender-affirming society that takes goes from a gender-affirming individual, a gender-affirming hospital or team, and then a hospital and then a society. That's really what we're aiming for. And I think a lot of that stems from just more education, even, you know, within these pro- more progressive institutions, there's still a lot of education that needs to be done of how do we provide a more affirming environment, use more inclusive language, um, more visibility, trans visibility, just on the walls, um, you know, gender neutral bathrooms, um, adopting and evolving with the change of language. Even, you know, when you read some certain papers, so they're, they're still using terminology that's outdated, um. And recognizing our own biases and what we bring to the table and how we can um, uh, recognize that in order to, to, to make those changes when we're uh, interfacing with a patient. So there's, there's, there's a lot, I think, that we still need to move towards.
1: Dr. Wittenberg, a similar question for you. I mean, you've been a leader in this area for a long time. So what are some of the changes you've seen? And then what are some of the changes you think are still needed and you know, where specifically?
3: how much time do we have yeah. um well i mean first of all the, the one of the biggest changes is insurance starting to get coverage and and we're lucky we're in california which re- requires insurances to cover that but sometimes insurance companies do workarounds um for that so uh, one is the access to care has gotten better um i think california's leading by having that access. And because of that, we have a higher volume. We've got probably one of the highest number of gender specialized, um, providers. And for instance, even having centers has been an evolution. Um, the gender Institute at St. Francis, um, was founded uh, six years ago at this point. And, um, and is working towards, as we all should be, as the fellowships have started, um, more training, global education, and WPATH has a global education institute to help with that. But these centers that help um, provide wraparound services or work with wonderful niche um, programs that are already in the community like lion Martin or the community health center or the San Francisco department of public health and how we can integrate together. Um, which is why I think San Francisco's, um, a little bit of a different animal, but, but we're taking advantage of all these wonderful programs where we need to go is, is having standardization and standardized training. Um, uh, I'm really proud of this, but uh, St. Francis became the first hospital to be a center of excellence for gender affirmation surgery based on the Surgical Review Corporation, which is a nonprofit for safety and patient outcomes. So starting with those programs, accredited fellowships. And and one of the other big things is San Francisco has been great with the underprivileged, underserved um, a lot of our, um, like, higher functioning patients um, have had to navigate themselves. So we do need centers with more navigation. Mm-hmm. We need legal advocacy, financial advocacy, like, those things going forward. And and the other big thing is, particularly I'm narrowing it down to surgery, is people think, oh, they just come in for surgery and, whoop, two weeks later you're gone. There's a lot of recovery mm-hmm. and support, uh, safe spaces that are needed three months off for our particular surgery of off of work, uh, Support. support are in the Bay area for a month, a support person with is with them for a minimum of two weeks. Those are huge financial, um, logistical, um, issues put COVID on top of that, but, um, <laughs> Uh, we really need a lot more support service to have successful outcomes. Um, people trying to cram in a major, one of the biggest surgeries in their life and try to go back two weeks later are setting themselves up for failure. So there there's just needs to be education, support, um, so that people can move on with their lives and, and someone like me is just a blip on their radar.
1: Needing education support to deal with the emotional and, and, and mental and relationship aspects of the change or uh...
3: that too. I mean, okay. just um, socioeconomic, um, mentally, physically, there's so much that goes into counseling. We're like, okay, we want you when, if you're not from the area, we want you to have a local provider when you go home. So they don't have to be specialized in the surgery. I just need to be talking to somebody medical. I want you to prophylactically make an appointment with a mental health provider. About eight to 10 weeks out, you're going to hit a post post-op blues phase, which any big surgery you have, you're going to have post-op blues. But that compounding on everything, we just need all these things set up to set someone up for success so they don't spiral or give, or stop taking care of themselves or don't go in or go in and, and unfortunately go into a place that is not set up for them and get the not the appropriate care, which can lead to complications. Mm-hmm.
2: I think everyone here on this panel, you probably have a thing or two to say in terms of the barriers that the TGNC community faces when it comes to access to care. If we could have you also add your thoughts to it, and maybe even specifically how your organization or your center is addressing some of these barriers, such as costs, such as health care, and the the general access. Uh, Dr. Why did I just blank on your name? Oh, Wittenberg.
3: (laughs) I know. It's it's no problem. Dr. Wittenberg (laughs)
2: just talked a whole lot about how San Francisco is leading when it comes to some of these issues. But then Dr. Lay had also mentioned Dr. Alexis had talked about a state like Alabama, where 90% of these barriers exist. So if you could... Uh, add your thoughts also to how we address how we tackle some of these barriers. Um, I'll start with Dr. Alexis.
6: Yeah, sure. So I think you know, my organization TransClinic is definitely you know addressing breaking down the barriers in terms of accessibility. Um, granted, it's not a free service, but literally my goal is to expand to all fifty states and to expand patient load and volume um, through foundations and grants rather than venture capital which some of the other people have done um so that's my goal so you know the person you know i offer as much free care as i can but there's you know time constraints and things like that cost constraints licensing insurance etc so there's definitely um you know some barriers in terms of that um but you know, in terms of accessibility, it's definitely it's definitely there right now in the 26 states that I'm, that I'm offering. Um, you know, you have to look out, you know, Florida, Texas, Arizona, um, Alabama. Some of these places are, you know, starting to obviously pass um, stringent rules that, you know, providers can get fined and or jail time for providing care. Um, so far, that's just limited to minors. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they start, you know, going after... Um, you know, attacking things like telemedicine or other type of surgical providers. So, so it's definitely something to be aware of. But, um, yeah, like I said, in- accessibility-wise, you know, I think that we've come a long way, whether it be the telemedicine, you know, trans-clinic versus um, other foundations in-, in a lot of major cities, you know, New York, San Francisco in particular is, you know, the best for sure.
5: Dr. Leigh? Um I agree with uh with alexis you know i I was gonna say if I was going first is accessibility you know the the zoom um you know especially with Covid having you know hit the whole world and everybody um you know went to zoom, we started looking at sort of widening our our services and and um outreach uh by providing that access so someone could you know could from Alabama seek a consultation, um, I s- certainly don 't plan on opening an office there or anything that was that 's certainly doomed um, but um, but there 's no law that says that you can 't leave the state and have your care done, but we also have to facilitate that, and uh, Dr. Wittenberg sort of touched on that. you know We have a lot of patients um, and probably in each and every one of our practices that uh, that come from out of state because they don 't have adequate care there, but we need to facilitate that pathway, uh, which is what um, the gender institute is trying to to not just establish and provide but also to set an example to the rest of the country, even the world on how to to provide that high quality type of uh, access to gender care but that 's really the you know outreach, and aside from that education. You know, um, a lot of us do go around and um, give talks, uh, you know, in different parts of the country. I certainly have um, since I started my career in gender surgery and just through education. I think that also helps um, not just the patients, but also allies and supporters. And it kind of builds uh, from there. Dr. Butler?
4: Yeah, I think all of these are intertwined with each other. I think, you know, for me, it comes down to increasing access for pre-surgical services. You know, I think um, we talked a lot about there's a lot that goes into for someone to get surgery. Um, you know, we, you talk about letters of support, access to mental health, hair removal. And, you know, I think as, as surgeons, we try workarounds. Um, for people who don't have access because of, you know, they're prohibited due to cost, um, or they don't have a provider who is willing to provide, you know, hair removal um, in the genital region, it's a it's a um, big barrier for a lot of for a lot of folks. And we tried workarounds, but really, it's about what's optimal for the patient and what's going to work best for long term outcomes for the patient. So I think trying to increase services and ultimately it comes down to more providers um, and you know insurance coverage.
3: I'm going to say, ditto. There's the there's the big policy. Insurance mm-hmm. coverage is number one, um, and there's more providers now, um, increasing access, accessibility, education. So if a patient goes to the ER, an ER physician isn't calling their surgeon, who did their gender surgery, for because they came in with gallbladder symptoms. Yeah. Like, they no treat. The patient for their gallbladder issues. Uh, so just making uh, sure that there's uh, global education on on a more um, like pared down individual level is um, navigators for our higher functioning patients. And we just got a navigator at the Gender Institute, but. Uh, really, programs in San Francisco, like the Department of Public Health, have their own navigators. Lion Martin has outreach and mobile mobiles that go out to help with um, our homeless patients and try to set up um, a housing, actually, and also the Community Health Center. All three of those try to set up um, a safe space for a homeless patient to stay in their recovery and send out home health care nurses. Um, Providers And we when um, it's, it's a little frustrating when patients get frustrated with us that we're not covered under an insurance like it's our fault. <laughs> I was like, no, uh, you know, we asked to be contract. We've worked really hard to um, so that patients is not this is not out of pocket. It's covered by insurance um, and insurances kind of work around by just not contracting with providers who provide these services. So then for those patients that are not covered and not under eligible for programs, it's, there's uh, payment plans, there's working in a surgery center if they're appropriate for, for it because surgery centers are far less expensive than hospitals, um, and, and trying workarounds in, in that fashion. Just quickly, uh,
2: so do you think that the insurance companies need a whole lot of education. Or? Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. We, in fact, um, when we were f- starting, this was now eight years ago. I was starting my practice and trying to educate why why um, they should contract with me. I had to educate them like what I do. It's not a, it's not uh, removing an ovary. It's not it, you know it's it's different. It required specialized training, and a lot of the providers who are gender specialized. Provide a lot of kind of concierge specialized services um, other than their their primary role because patients don't have access to the wraparounds um, and and saving it for the original um, arguments I got is well I want to save uh, we only want to contract with academics and it was like well right now this was a you know, years ago is it's only private surgeons who are doing this and academic centers are not. So, um, you you know, working through that education. So yeah, there was a lot of education and talking to directors and I'm still (laughs) never signed up for it, but that's part of the job now.
2: Anybody want to add anything about working with insurance companies?
6: We'll talk, I think it's another show. To
1: ahead, well, let's talk a bit more about research in particular, new treatments and medicines. What, where, uh, where are some areas of, of research that you think we need or we should be going or that you even know that's, that's making good progress and you think will be kind of coming to fruition um, in the next however many years I start with you dr wittenberg and head back down the line
3: right. well uh global education initiative is like the high level um in in my world um it's like how do i make my procedure better and and um we're doing a study on it and and we have a couple research studies on on um studies in our institute as well as yesterday i did uh, a journal club and someone brought up um more updated terminology and how surgeons might be a little bit more behind the rest. And maybe they could provide education to the surgeons. <laughs> I said, well, come to our next meeting. And, you know, just just continued education on, I mean, it's across the board at this point. Dr. Baker. Yeah,
4: this is a wholly <laughs> understudied field and there's uh, so much to dive into. Um, from outcomes research to quality improvement. And I think there's an opportunity here to really be able to hone in on the community aspect of things, right? What's important to the community? What do they want? What research do they want to see being done? um, in terms of how do we better this field? How do we, um, further along, you know, uh, why patients seek surgery, what, what's important for patients to seek surgery. So I think there's an opportunity to really kind of hone in on that and, and get them involved in, the, in research.
1: Dr. Lane.
5: Well, I think we can all agree that in the last 10 years, there's been a great, great increase in the youth uh, coming out. And so because it seems like uh, it's relatively early in in the youth treatment that a lot of research still has to be even put out, you know I know that many centers are collecting the data, but it's simply just not long enough to see what the actual long term um, effects are, or or uh, studies will, will really show so I think um, sort of keeping track of of our our youth um, is a big uh, field that still needs a lot of work uh, on, and it, like I said, it is being worked on. Um, on the other end, I think that a lot of this this sort of research doesn't necessarily have to come from big uh, academic centers. Um, even as individual private practice practitioners, you know, um, you know, we can still put out data, especially. Um, clinical outcome uh, data and you know sort of i resonate with with my colleagues here of how can we do this better is this way of doing it really truly showing uh the results and the decrease in complications that we really want but really look at even our own results uh, Mm -hmm. uh objectively and so um you know, I I I actually feel like I kind of missed an opportunity in my last practice. You know, I had so so many patients because it was such a large center, but I I sort of got busy into obviously learning the techniques, becoming good at it, and sort of sort of left that. But now that you know I you know I've moved uh, from that uh, practice, I'm actually gonna start that now and at least do my little uh, part in in. Collecting my own uh, data uh, and outcomes, and hopefully in the next few years, reporting it uh, and being true, obviously to the data and the science. Um, even if the numbers don't look that great, I, I, I think they will. But, um, but putting that that out. But on um, looking into the future, and I do have patients that do ask me uh, about advances and like the the dream, right, the dream of our patients is is tissue engineering or tissue transplantation. And so I do get asked a lot about, you know, can I get a a penile transplant? Can I get a uterine transplant? And some of these things have been achieved. It's not so much a surgical technical issue. I mean, I can certainly transplant, you know, something like a penis um, kind of thing, but um it's the immunology and the science behind immunology um and immunosuppression so it's 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 a it's a distant dream that unfortunately i don 't think it's going to happen in my in my lifetime, and certainly tissue engineering of okay let 's make a vagina and then just you know transfer it and implant it into someone and have it all work um who knows i mean may you know who knows? You know, even to this day, sometimes I'm amazed that what we do even mm-hmm. works. I was you I say, dream big. Yeah, <laughs> we, can have we can We can. make it happen. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe someday when I'm really, well, I'm old already, but really old, mm-hmm. um, I'll be like, wow, I, I, really didn't think I would, I would see this, and I would just be happy.
1: Dr.
6: Luxus,
5: yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, um,
6: first of all, wow, those things are amazing. Surgical technology and advancement. But, um you know, from my point of view um i'm i'm sometimes amazed by the number of patients that come to me because they can 't find a primary care doctor or theirs aren't willing to prescribe hormones, so I mean, it's good for business, but you know, it's, it's it's like come on it's not you know so I think a lot of education is needed still, um you know especially in areas that are you know more rural and whatnot um, So the other thing is interesting is you know we're still using medications that are quite a bit older. So like spironolactone, you know, T blocker, that medicine's been around you know for a decade. And it's like, come on, Gilead, you know, if you're listening, come to me. Honestly, so let's go. Exactly. So let's do a study. Let's get a one medicine that you know it's a hormone, it's an estrogen, T blocker, and one. Right. This they do all these crazy blood pressure medicines, why can't they do that? So I think that's you know, also you know, kind of a next step because, again, we're still using these ancient medications for things. So I think that's also important as well as the, the surgical technologies.
2: We'll start with Dr. Wittenberg, and then it's an open uh, question to the rest of the panel, but... Um, I love this question because it's at the heart of our conversation today, which I opened up with, you know, by by focusing on or treating patients with a, a non-binary or gender-neutral or even a trans perspective or lens, that we could create a much more inclusive, uh, you know, healthcare future, meaning that we're not we're not excluding folks or we're not treating. Okay, let me back up really quick. (laughs) I don't see trans-affirming care or trans-specific care as just for the transgendered community. I think that the rest of the world can benefit when we start looking or having the perspective of care in a non-binary or a, a TGNC way. Does that make sense to you? Like.
3: Well, yeah, I think that's if I'm interpreting right that um, we're talking about because multiple experiences in an emergency room where someone's calling me and it's 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 about the care of the individual, no matter mm-hmm. what surgeries they've had in the past. Um, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah. And, and like educating people like. Like, for example... see the person.
2: Yeah, there's... Treat the symptoms. Treat the symptoms. It's not just a trans person who might come see you for top surgery. Right. um, Right. and, And then the recovery process is not going to also look like, oh, you know... Or at least a hundred percent, because you're you're male and treating you as male or female.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. we've started at uh, St. Francis Memorial Hospital asking everybody when they walk in the door what's their preferred name and pronouns, and um, if it's different than what's in um, the EMR, and we're changing the the electronic medical record so it can reflect. The desired, but um, everybody can get a band with their preferred names and pronouns on that. So we're trying to make it more uh, a global acceptance, and um, all of our badges have our pronouns. Um, we introduce ourselves with our pronouns, and it doesn't matter. Uh, what this is dietary and I'm just talking about the hospital, but then we're going to branch out to the offices and in life when we're doing our education. It's like you should introduce yourself as your name and your preferred your preferred name and your preferred pronouns. And it just becomes normative. And then it's not it's not a specialty mm. per se. Or another label.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think normalizing thing that's the goal, right? You want to provide this sort of affirming approach to all your patients. And it shouldn't be that I just have to like, think about something, especially because it happens to be a, a trans person walked in front of me. This should be automatic. That's, that's the ideal. Um, just having this approach and sensitivity um, to everyone. Everyone comes with their own, even, you know, other cultures, right? Like there are patients who with different cultures and different ideals that we need to be sensitive to. Um, and I think a lot of times we tend to imprint what we think is best, this p- kind of paternalistic way of uh, of approaching medicine. And we really need to come away from that and empower patients, right? To feel like, okay, let's put them in charge, right? It's their body. It's, and um, there's a long way to go to incorporating that. As a group, I think you know it's it's starting with with our approach to trans and gender diverse individuals, but there's also a lot to learn, and how we can apply that to the, the rest of our patients. Anyone
5: else? Yeah,
6: what um, was, what was a
5: good <laughs> No, I I mean I, I I agree. It it's just awareness, creating awareness that, um, and kind of getting out of that that thinking of, uh, the binary thinking, you know, something is male or or female or masculine or feminine, you know, there's the in between, um, that's a lot larger than, than anybody really realizes or, or thinks about. And so I think awareness that there is a truly a spectrum, um, and just being respectful of that, that person's, uh, Expression of their, of their gender identity in any setting, really, not just in the healthcare uh, field, um, but really um, awareness, I would say, of, of the in between. Yeah, and
6: lastly, I just want to add that there's a lot of intersectionality in terms of, you know, someone's gender diverse, but, you know, come from a multitude of socioeconomic mm-hmm. classes, uh, multiple. Races, language, culture—so, like Dr. Butler was referring to—you know, you really have to be aware of all those things and respectful of those things, and you know, just try to recognize what you know that individual patient really needs, and and address that, and help them through whatever their obstacle is, whether it be you know financial, family—you know, there's so many things. Some people have multitude of support networks. Some people have none. So, you know, I really have to just help them navigate. And I think, I mean, that's why I feel like my role is beyond the hormones is just trying to, you know, help people through the process. You know, maybe not, you know, reinvent the wheel. Things that I've went through, mistakes that I made, things like that. So, just kind of help them through and get them to the right surgical. You know, places uh, or
1: whatnot, so. So the access to information, access to, uh, I mean, sound information and access to medical experts is so important here. Um, But I guess I want to kind of get into the negative, which we've touched on a couple times here, which is these kind of rolling laws, you know, this wave of laws across the country, and they seem to be, you know, sprouting up in more and more, frankly, Republican-controlled legislatures. And Dr. Alexis, you you Mm. have customers and clients across the country. The rest of you have people who who come here for your services. Um, Are you worried about? Are you worried for your own practice? Or is this a danger in what you can say, or does that not affect you as long as you're working here? And start with you, Dr. Alexis, because you actually are talking to folks who are in Alabama or Oklahoma (laughs) or wherever.
6: Definitely. So definitely have to be know aware of the landscape which is rapidly changing um you know it's a shame that you know you know gender diverse and trans non-binary community is the hot button issue and you know the political right religious right i should say and political right are using you know our community as um you know a way to collect votes and Mm -hmm. you know and so there's backlash against you know presidential policies that are just affecting our community, because that's the easy target, and historically. And so, so yeah, I mean, it is, uh, you know, in those states in particular, like, you know, right now it's pediatric, so I need to be very careful about providing for anyone under 18, or 19 even. So, but the next step may be I can't take care of anyone in that state, so you know it's definitely out there um hopefully it doesn't come to that but but again i feel like you know especially with midterm elections coming up and you know our community is always just kind of picked on um you know for political gain and mm-hmm. you know there could be a senator that has a trans kid but they'll still you know be out there pumping <laughs> these laws just because you know because that's how they can collect votes so um, Dr. Whitmer.
3: i would say you know it's it's unfortunate it, it's mirroring the reproductive um, rights Mm -hmm. as well, and it seems to be the same groups that are um, trying to create changes in laws and tend to be the same states. And and, and it's, again, higher-functioning individuals or with with better support or socioeconomic can get telehealth or, or go to other states, but it's really the patients who... Can't afford to do the workarounds and move to other states or get access to telehealth care. That I, we just need to encourage everybody to vote um, is just one step. Mm-hmm. But um, those things kind of mirror each other right now. They're just um, atrocious laws um, providing yet yeah, really legal consequences for. People providing the services, someone who transports a patient to for services, uh, a family member who doesn't um, disclose that someone's having services. And it's just unheard of. I mean, it is heard of. It's yeah. existing. I just <laughs> yeah. I'm in disbelief still. Sure.
1: Yeah. you further heard the thoughts.
4: Um, I, I guess I would just say, you know, I'm not fearful for myself. I'm fearful for the community. I'm fearful for my patients um, because it really comes down to a safety issue This is, you know, life or death. There's numerous studies that have been done that to demonstrate that gender-affirming treatment is life-saving. You know, it it decreases mental distress. It decreases suicidal ideation. And just to criminalize and weaponize it, it's only going to make matters worse. You know, we've seen it with abortion rights and people seeking care elsewhere in unsanctioned ways um, to get the help that they need. It's not going to stop people from seeking help. You're just going to do it in an unhealthy and unsafe way. So that's, that's my fear with this. And I think... It's not to say that there's nothing we can do. There is something we can do. We continue to be advocates. We continue to to fight the fight and and continue to provide the the literature, the evidence that we need to to demonstrate that why this is so important.
2: And vote. Yeah. And vote. And vote, yeah. (laughs) Please vote. Um, I have one last question, and just a reminder for everyone, we have a social reception upstairs in the beautiful rooftop, and you'll all each get to have access to our panelists or speakers here. So if you've got questions, make sure you come and say hi to all our brilliant speakers. Um, The last question really dovetails around, you know, yes, the negativity. And every year we come up against these uh, horrible fights. Yet at the same time, there are some things that we can celebrate, such as, you know, how look how far we've come. Right. Um, And so this last question is about the hope, the hope for now and the future of trans healthcare. I know we have a lot of work to do, there's a lot of education we got to get out there. The insurance companies got to get their act together. <laughs> uh, G- Gilead, it sounds like there's some medicine we've got to <laughs> ups- <laughs> <laughs> We need to vote. We have so much work to do, but leave us with some hope and your thoughts on the future of trans care. We'll start with Dr. Wittenberg.
3: Um, well, m- my dream right now in my little realm is, is really working with all the programs in San Francisco so that we become interconnected. Um, instead of recreating the wheel and everybody having their own center is all boats rise. And I use the saying that you said earlier a lot, it takes a village and, um, we can just be powerful together here and, and become an example and lead by example. Is where I see this going in the immediate future, Dr. Butler. Um, My hope is we have these amazing
4: forums where we can have these discussions, and I can be amongst all these amazing women who are doing so much for the the field. And to see that is it gives me a lot of inspiration and hope, and that we can continue to inspire others. Those young, you know, medical students who want to get into gender-affirming care, or just even be a representative in the medical field. So I think that there, we're doing a lot of good, and I think if we can continue to do what we're doing, we can we can really go far.
5: I think for me, despite um, all the negativity <clears throat> um, surrounding our, our trans and, and non-binary youth, my, my hope is in the youth, actually. You know, it's in the kids, and I think... Um, for allies, supporters, even providers. Um, I think finding a way to empower our youth to sort of, as we we're sort of saying, fight the fight, mm-hmm. You know, do your part. Um, I think that's that's the most hopeful thing. I see kids um, frequently in my practice, and I know that they are perhaps going through an even harder uh, time in, in their transition. And I tell them, I really do. I I, I tell them, you know, you represent hope for me. I mean, I, I say that personally, honestly, you know, you represent hope for me. You have your whole life ahead of you. And I do remind them that they are very fortunate because they had the ability to have their parents be supportive, to have allies and other supporters get them as far as to our doors, right? Because we were sort of, kind of the last line right you know having going through mental health hormones and then surgery seems to be like the last thing um i I remind them of that and so that you know they can you know maybe go home and think about it and be like wow you know she's right you know i i am the future uh for our community and they go on and and go to school seek higher education you know, become a, a political figure, that type of thing. And so, um, I, I, I remind them, I remind them how lucky they are um, that they are where they are, regardless of how hard things uh, seem at, at that time.
6: And so yeah, I'm very optimistic about the future of of trans and non-binary healthcare. You know, I feel like we've come, like Michelle said. An enormous way, you know, since I started to try to navigate this journey, and you know, the accessibility awareness is so much better now than it's ever been. Um, you know, well, I think Gen Z, you know, the great, you know, a great number of those uh, folks are gender diverse or you know LGBTQ, uh, race. A lot of those things aren't a big deal anymore. It's a younger generation. The way it's been, you know, for us and. Uh, Gen X here, and so, yeah. So I think I'm I'm very optimistic about about the future in terms of that and the new technologies and is Only you know, it's it's amazing.
2: Are we at Z or Z? I uh, yeah, that's what Z? Z? Yeah, I think it's double Z. Well.
6: Yeah, <laughs> oh, double Z. See, i <laughs> I
2: want to thank all of our speakers today. Thank you so much for all that you do for our community and your continued service and your passion and commitment to all of our communities, really. So let's give a big round of applause for Dr. Alexis, Dr. Leigh, Dr. Butler, and doctor Wittenberg. John, you want to do the last words? Thank you,
1: Michelle. And thank you all of you here in the room, everyone listening and watching online. And again, thanks to Gilead for their steadfast support of the Michelle Miao Show. Thank you for uh, Trans Clinique for partnering with this program series and thank you for the SFAids Foundation for all the wonderful fun we're going to have upstairs in just a couple minutes. Um, Have a wonderful weekend and let's head up to the rooftop and start our weekend off right.